We never know if a relationship is going to make it until we have roots in a relationship. I want you to imagine whether it's a friendship you have, whether it's a family relationship, no matter what it is, I want you to imagine that it's kind of a plant or a tree. If you're a a botanist, maybe you're going to have a more specific, but you can just have a metaphoric tree or plant in your mind. And I want you to imagine that you put that tree in there and it's a new relationship and there's things about it and it's kind of an idea at this point and it's there. And now the question is, how is that relationship going to withstand storms and difficult times? How is that relationship, when the experiences of life and life starts to happen, how is that relationship going to make it? Is it going to be a phase? We all, every single one of us in this room, have relationships that were a phase in our life. Maybe they were a middle school relationship, and it was a phase, and it was just there, and it didn't really have roots. So when life moved on, we moved on too. Maybe you had a romantic relationship at some time where circumstances brought you together and they were wonderful and they felt amazing, but there weren't really roots, and so you remember it. It's not really part of your current relationships, and it's not part really of your ongoing story. We never know if a relationship is going to make it until it has deep roots. I want to give you an example. I had a wonderful friend about 15 years ago when I was in my college years, and he was a great friend. And we went to church together. In fact, he was the person that told me about a pastor named Simon and a church plant that was happening that I got to be part of. And truthfully, once I moved away from Ohio, I kind of moved on from the relationship. It didn't necessarily have major roots. It was an experiential time, I thought at least at the time. And so when I moved away... I moved away, and it was a nice memory, and I remembered my friend, but just kind of moved on. Then about five years ago, so then 10 years after that, five years ago from now, our mutual pastor died, and I remembered my friend, and I called him up, and we had about an hour conversation, not about that the two of us were so sad that we were going through this experience, but that Simon was a key mentor in his life. Simon was a key mentor of my life, and we just talked about Simonisms. There were some shared values, and looking back, I realized that was one of the first times that our relationship started to build roots. We had an active relationship 15 years ago that we'd go out for coffee, we'd go to church together, we'd hang out, we'd watch a basketball game, we'd go to an art show, whatever. But it was in that moment that a little bit of roots started to develop. Then two years ago, so three years after that, two years ago, I went out and visited Ohio and I called up my friend and we got together and we had a lunch. And this time, again, it wasn't the experience of being together. We started realizing that he really deeply cares. He has three children. He deeply loves Jesus and he deeply cares about his children and he wants them to love Jesus. And I sat there And I have two children, and I deeply love Jesus, and I deeply care about my children, and I want my children to love Jesus. And so I started seeing, wow, there's some depth to this. Then earlier this week, my friend texts me out of the blue on Monday, and he says, hey, my wife and I are going to be here on Friday, and she grew up in Duxbury. 
And I'm sitting there thinking, what? She grew up in Duxbury. These are Ohio friends. She grew up in Duxbury. Wow, okay, information, new information. As soon as he says that, I start to think, wow, I, I didn't grow up in Duxbury, but I grew up in Plymouth. And I start, remember, growing up in Plymouth. And then we get together on Friday, and I spend the whole afternoon with them. And we drive around to various places. And it's not the experience now that I'm seeing developing roots. It's not we're having this wonderful moment. It's that I go to her childhood house. And she has a childhood house in this area. And I realize, wow, I kind of have a childhood house in this area. She talks about what it's like to revisit it. And I think, wow, I have a childhood home. Then we go to Far Fars. It's an ice cream place, which was always part of her childhood and growing up. And I literally notice as we're walking in, there's pictures on the wall. If you've ever been in on Far Fars, there's pictures on the wall of all kids who have worked there. And I've been in Far Fars for 18 years, and I've always noticed the pictures, but I've never known the details about them. There is a picture on the wall that she walks over and she says, oh, look, this is three of the girls I grew up with. I've seen this for 18 years. But I've never known. And so she says, this is this girl, and this is this girl, and this is this girl. And then we have our ice cream. And what I start to realize is that we never know if a relationship's going to make it until we have deep roots. I've realized my friendship with this family is going to continue because we have shared values, and we know information about each other that really is going to allow us to have a long-lasting friendship. Now, we think that experiences are what define the relationships. But I want to show you something that I believe is biblical and real. And I'm going to throw a graphic on the screen. I want you to look at this. How do I grow deep roots in a relationship? Underlying values and revealed information. With my friend, we have the same values, and I've learned that over time. And I've had information revealed. It's not about the experiences. Think about it. There's something in our society called gray divorce. Have you ever heard of gray divorce? Gray divorce is this idea that a couple, after 30, 40, 50 years of marriage, says, hey, this didn't work, and let's get divorced. And we can think about it, and part of what we understand is that one of the reasons gray divorces happen is because we overemphasize, as Americans, the shared experience. Oh, raising my kids is what's going to keep us together. Well, you, you were together during that point, and it was a mission and a value, but it's ultimately, do I have these character traits and values that draw me closer to my spouse, or are we just kind of getting through a time, and eventually we're going to say goodbye? And we can do that with any of our relationships. You can look at a sibling, you can look at a friend, but I'm going to show you how this works in your relationship with Jesus. Because what I want to show you is that the Apostle Paul, we've been in a sermon for a few weeks, not a sermon series. I realize this is one sermon about Jesus being the center. It's one sermon on the book of Colossians. It's about four and a half hours long. We're going to do a half an hour today. We're not going to do four and a half hours unless anyone wants to stay. Okay, no one wants to stay. Oh, one taker. Thank you. We, we always need the one taker. So the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of people. And one of the big questions here, so I want to be super clear, this is a recap, but the Apostle Paul is a guy, he's a former Pharisee, he's been, had this experience with Jesus where he's given his life to Jesus, and now he took time and he learned about Jesus, notice it's not just an experience, he learned about Jesus, and Jesus entered his heart and changed his life, 
And now he's writing from jail after serving Jesus for years. He's writing from jail to a group of people who face societal pressure. Does that sound familiar? And they also face the pressure to become really legalistic and religious and, and weird. And so he's writing to these people. And his big hope for them, you're going to see there's this poem. We read it before. We're going to even read it again as a church together at the end. You're going to see in this poem that what he's trying to do is he's saying, hey, your relationship with Jesus needs to have roots. You're going to go through dark times, Colossian church. People are going to give you a really hard time. Life is not going to be glossy and perfect and you're all going to be millionaires. It's going to be hard. And the question now is going to be, in your relationship with Jesus, is it going to have roots? Or are you going to say, eh, life's too difficult, so I'm going to move away from Jesus so life is better? That is the big crisis that Paul is addressing with Colossians. And if you notice, there's a lot for us to think about that. Because here is our big idea. A relationship with Jesus. A relationship with Jesus can be an idea or it can have roots. I can in my head say, I like the religious idea of Jesus. That's exciting. Or I can now allow it to have roots. Now, here's the challenge with it. Sometimes we go to church and we want to be entertained. And sometimes we go to church and we love that David runs around and is silly and funny and cracks jokes. Or we go to other churches and we hope for a big show. That's okay. But the challenge here is that there's something called theology. Theology is how we understand God. There's something called Christology, which is how we understand Jesus. And we need it because if, if we just say theology and Christology is boring, that's fine for right now, I guess. But when life gets hard, then Jesus is just this idea and we don't have these roots. We don't understand the characteristics of him. We don't understand really the underlying ideas about Jesus. And so now Jesus was just kind of this religious idea and my life got hard and he's just like any other guru or any other therapist or anything. He's just kind of on the shelf with everybody else. He doesn't actually change my life. And so what I want to invite you to say is, hey, we're going to have an opportunity to say, am I growing my Jesus root system? Am I saying today... It's not about salvation, by the way. This isn't about, I'm going to be saved by having a Jesus root system. No, it's I'm going to learn more things about Jesus so that I really am rooted in scriptural truth about Jesus. So when life gets weird, because it will, I can look at any single person here. Life, I'll pick on my wife. Laura, life is going to get weird. We have a four-year-old. Someday she's going to be 14. Someday she's going to be 24. And someday she's going to be 44. Can we all agree that life is going to get weird at some point? So therefore, it's helpful to grow a Jesus root system because if I'm just having my life defined by, she came and gave me a hug before, before the sermon earlier. If I'm just having my life defined by, wow, at church, I love Jesus. And what does that mean? That means my daughter gives me a hug. Well, what happens when she doesn't give me a hug? Someday she's going to be old and probably at a different church and married, and I'm still going to be probably not at her church. And so therefore, if my relationship with Jesus is about that, it's not going to have roots. So we're going to be a little boring today, and I'm so sorry. Actually, I'm not. I love it. We're going to be boring. I'm going to give you five things about a Christology, which is theological ideas about Jesus. And I want to tell you something. Everybody, if you've got a Bible, grab it. Okay. So 
I'm not going to say this is what the entire Bible is saying about Jesus. I'm going to show you what Paul writes to the Colossian church in one letter. If you look at other parts of the New Testament, you can develop more of a Jesus root system too. The Gospel of John is all about creating a Jesus root system. If you look at the I am statements of Jesus, it's to give you your Jesus root system, to foundationally say boom, 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 boom. We're not doing John today, we're just doing Colossians. So I want to show you the first root, image. Here's what Colossians says, and I'm just going to, on each of them, I'm going to quickly give you five roots, and I'm going to show you just the one verse that, that connects to it. At the very end, we're going to read the whole poem together, and we're going to put it all together into one coherent idea. But here's what it is with image. Christ is the image of the invisible God. So here's what that means. The outward lived reality of Jesus points to a greater reality. I want you to imagine a coin. Now, we live in a time of Venmo and cashless and Apple Pay, so you probably don't have a coin. But if someone can grab a coin out, if anybody has a coin, I'm curious, does anyone here have a coin? Let's see. Could someone bring me a coin? Now, if I asked this 10 years ago, this would be a lot easier. It's hard. The first coin will do. I just need any coin because I want to show you something about Jesus with a coin because we say that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Do you notice how long it takes? This is because we live in a cashless society. So thank you, my friend Karen. I'll give it back to you at the end. So you're going to see here there's an image. We understand this image, and this image tells us all about the value. That is part... It's not the only thing, because we don't want to do something, and I won't go there, we don't want to do something called modalism. So I'm not going to say that Jesus is only an image of God. One of the things we say is Jesus is the image of the visible God, kind of like this coin is the image of 25 cents. So we see in our Jesus root system, now how do you apply that? Let's talk about that. So at the times that I feel spiritually confused, do you ever feel spiritually confused? Stories of Jesus, because Paul is writing to a people relatively recently after Jesus. We now are 2,000 years later. So stories of Jesus are kind of like this coin that they reveal characteristics of God. So I want to show you a couple. So we see in the Gospels, so you see early on, you've got this idea of Jesus and the woman at the well. And he sits there and talks to her, and she's cast off from her society, and her society would have made her disposable. We learn that Jesus acts this way, therefore God believes this and God sees this. No one's disposable to God. Then there's a story about this little short guy named Zacchaeus in Luke, in Luke 19. And he's so short that he has to climb up a tree to be seen by Jesus. Have you heard this story? There's a funny little song. I'll sing a teeny bit of it. Zacchaeus was a wee little... Okay, good. If you grew up in the church, you know that. If you didn't, you're like, what is this guy doing? Not only is he going theological, but he's singing at me a children's song? Like, this guy needs to leave. Okay, so we've got that. And then that shows us that no one's invisible to God. Jesus doesn't let this guy blend in. He says, hey, I'm going to eat at your house. He invites himself over. Then you've also got this idea of this guy named Peter. And Peter is our confused knucklehead throughout the New Testament. And so the challenge with Peter, he did the bad thing. He denied Jesus three times. He said, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. Not good. 
But then Jesus gives him an opportunity to say, Peter, feed my sheep, Peter, feed my sheep, Peter, feed my sheep, and he restores him, and that shows that God forgives us. So do you see how the stories of Jesus and the image of Jesus tells us something about the character of God? So as we're building our Jesus root system, I think that's helpful. Now I want to do another one. Builder. We have some builders in here. I won't pick on any of you. You're like, the two builders that I just looked at, they're like, oh man, he's going to talk about me. I promise I won't say your name. Okay, so builder, through God, through him, God created everything. Let's keep this one simple. If you've ever had work done by a building crew, I want to have you imagine that God is kind of like the owner of a building company and Jesus is the builder. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's a good way to think of it. Here's what it means. That Jesus is actually responsible for creation. If you look at the beginning of John's gospel, it says, in the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and it talks about the creationary role that Jesus has. Now, why does that matter? You're like, David, that was really dense, and you lost me. Then let me make it clear. In the places where my life is a mess and needs to either have some deconstruction and reconstruction, we know those places, right? What's deconstruction? You pull out the sledgehammer, you whack the wall, and then you build something up. In those places, Jesus is the one who is perfectly equipped to rebuild your life. Because he's responsible for the creation of everything. Therefore, for you, in your life, where you think, I'm just little old me, okay, little old you, you have things in your life that need to be rebuilt. Let's let Jesus rebuild them, because he's a way better builder than anybody else. Let's do another one. Two down, three to go. He's the head. Okay. Now, this is hard because we misunderstand what they meant by head because point to your head for a moment. Everybody point to your head. I want to see all hands on heads. Okay. What's in your head? Your brain. Okay. At the time, they didn't really have that understanding. They thought decisions and things happened more with the heart and thinking happened with the heart, but they did know something. If you cut off your arm, do you die instantly? You don't. If you cut off your leg, do you die instantly? You don't. You might bleed out, but that's another discussion. That's a medical secondary thing, right? If you cut off your head, can you live without your head? No. no. So therefore, what's being talked about here, it says this, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. Sometimes we take this and we think about weird things and we, we get all strange. I want to keep it super simple. What is the church? The church is Christian people together, okay? Look around. I'm not going to make you talk to them, but look around. See a couple Christians around you. If you're joining us online, um, think about Christians you know. That's the church. If you try to do the church without Jesus, it's like cutting the head off the church. You don't have the church. So sometimes people will do this, right? So sometimes we'll say, oh, the cross is, that's too much. I'm going to get the cross out. Well, be careful, because if you take Jesus out of the church, it's not the church. It's just kind of a semi-boring country club, cultural hub thing, community center that we bring together. If you take Jesus out of the church, we get really dangerous really quickly, and then there starts to be all sorts of other stuff we have to deal with. What we understand here is as we're building our root system, Jesus is the head of the church. In your life, let's make it real, in your life, if things are going great and you love Jesus, that's probably part of the reason why. I'm not going to say God's going to bless you material 
materially because there's no guarantee of that. But what I do know is that if you love and serve Jesus and you keep him at the center of your life, life will go well. And when I say go well, means you'll have peace, a measure of it. You'll have relative happiness or at least an eternal mindset and an understanding that, hey, even if today isn't unbelievable, I know where I'm going and therefore I can live transformed today, et cetera, et cetera, right? So that's kind of our thought with the head. But if we say, my life today is a mess, well, my question is, is Jesus involved in your active life? We have a phrase we've been working on, every day, every way our relationship with Jesus. It's not like Sunday and a small group. It's not just in some areas, but I keep these for me. If your life in every day, every way, Jesus is the center, that's why we're doing this series, by the way, because we're really trying to say, if we can start to get a group of people that really in every day, in every way are loving Jesus, keeping him at the center, amazing things are going to happen. And so if we're not necessarily there, you can say, okay, my life is a mess, and there are places where Jesus, I just don't involve him. That might be in the entire problem. It doesn't necessarily mean that you need to start whacking people over with Jesus. Maybe it's simply at your workplace. If you have your faith life and your work life, maybe a practice you can say is every time something starts to be difficult at work, you can put it one hand in the pocket, and that can be your cue in your head, okay, I'm going to take 10 seconds, and I'm going to pray for the situation. Dear God, I'm feeling frustrated at work right now. I don't see a way. Lord, would you just remind me that you're with me here in my workplace? Amen. Notice you're not asking him for anything. You're not like making some deal or accessing the ATM. You're simply just saying, hey, Jesus be included in my life. Okay, so head. We're doing good. Three down, two to go. Let's talk about God. God in all his fullness was lived. I will say that again. God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Here's our biggest, most confusing theological thing, and I'm going to throw it out there. You're going to write it down. Ready? This is called the hypostatic union. It means that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So fully God and fully human. Now, it's hard because sometimes we just treat Jesus like other things. Sometimes we just say, hey, Jesus is a spiritual leader. Have you ever looked at this? Oh, I just love the teachings of Jesus. I just love how Jesus has wonderful teachings. And we're going to throw a graphic up. So sometimes we're going to say, I just love the teachings of Jesus. He's a spiritual leader with helpful teachings. And so um, you might notice this. You go on Facebook and people write the words of Jesus. Even Gandhi himself said, you know, I like your Jesus, I just don't like your church. So sometimes we have this idea that we can just take Jesus' teachings and that's enough. Then... That's one perspective. There's another perspective. WWJD, what does that stand for? What would Jesus do? So the first one's kind of like the cultural way to look at Jesus. Hey, I don't necessarily love the church, want to be a Christian, but there's some teachings of Jesus that are helpful. I'm going to put them with everything else, and maybe I'll like those. Then there's this religious idea. What would Jesus do, as you said? He's the example of a perfect or a moral life. So we say, hey, I'm going to white-knuckle it. I'm going to be more like Jesus. And I'm going to cut things out of my life for the sake of just white-knuckling, being more like Jesus. But the problem is we forget this part, which is what it's talking about with God, where Jesus is God and all of the above. Jesus, yes, he does have helpful teachings, 
If you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's excellent. I can't preach better to you than the Sermon on the Mount. It's much better than you will you'll ever get from me preaching at Faith Community Church or from you going to any other church in the country. He's the best pastor, he's the best teacher, and his stuff is terrific. I talked to a guy recently, I saw a guy at a prayer meeting, and I'm always interested, people from other churches, and I asked him, hey, what's your favorite part of the Bible? He said, oh, I just love the book of Luke, because there's all those wonderful parables and the teachings of Jesus. So yes, those are helpful when we have an expansive view and when we're building our root system. Yes, Jesus does teach us the example of a perfect moral life. The Apostle Paul in another letter says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So that's good, but we got to remember he's God and all of the above. Jesus, when walking around, is fully God, fully human. I'm going to show you what that doesn't mean, and I'm going to use superheroes to do it. So the Marvel superheroes, you'll think of a guy named Spider-Man. These are not what the hypostatic union means because it's really hard for us to understand what does it mean for someone to be fully God and fully human. It's not Spider-Man. Spider-Man is fully human with superpowers. That's not Jesus. You with me? So next time you think of that and you want to describe it, don't describe it as like, well, he's just a human with like special powers to, to raise Lazarus from the dead. No, that's not what the Bible teaches in your root system, please don't build that root because that root will not ground you. That root I could defeat in about 30 seconds. Okay, he's also not Iron Man. And you could say, what, what are you talking about? Of course he's... Let me show you. It's not just like that Jesus was just a guy who put on a God suit and now like he's a guy with a God suit running around. He's not like Iron Man or Batman. Again, I could defeat that in about 30 seconds from a theological angle. So if you're going through a tough time and you want to have spiritual roots, don't just think, yeah, he's a, a, a full human only who wore a God suit at times. Not helpful. He's also not Thor. He's not a, simply a God in human form. So he's none of those things. Jesus is fully God and fully human. And I sat and I tried to find an example of a superhero that's fully God and fully human. It doesn't exist just Jesus. You can ask my son, Henry. Henry's two. And he's into this whole thing. He's into two things. He'll say, he'll, we'll ask him, he'll say, who's your best friend? And he'll, he'll say, well, dad's my best friend. But then if you ask him who his superhero is, if it's not Spider-Man, he says, Jesus. So maybe we can start saying like, you know, none of those other superheroes get it, but we do have Jesus who's fully God, fully human, not like Spider-Man, not like Iron Man, not like Thor. And now again, you can say, David, you kind of lost me. Well, I'm going to unlose you. So here's why this matters. Because if we have a theological understanding of Jesus, we can apply it really well. Let me show you what I mean. Now, when life happens, I want to define what life happens means. I'm so sorry. A car accident, a cancer diagnosis, someone we love getting divorced, our spouse saying they want a divorce, I'm sorry I'm giving you bad ones, but I'm going to give you a bunch. Um, getting laid off at work, a fire, a flood, a war going on in another part of the world that just freaks us out. Other wars going on that don't freak anyone out, and we feel like they should be freaking anyone out, and we feel really frustrated and discouraged by it, etc. right? So when life happens, do I treat Jesus just like another guru, another really wise, or another Jedi, right? Do I just treat Jesus like, oh, he's... He's this person that gives me ideas. Do I just treat him kind of like a therapist? Oh, well, I pray to God and I pray to Jesus and he listens to me and I feel better. 
Do I treat him like a motivational speaker? Oh, I love the prodigal son story. I hear that, and that just makes me want to do different things. Those are helpful-ish if they're part of what we do, but that can't be the whole root of Jesus being God. Am I living like Jesus is a bumper sticker, a wristband, or God? Because if Jesus is God in my life, then when I do have those situations that otherwise wreck me, the car accident, etc., I can turn and say, hey, I don't just have another guru with my faith. I don't just have another therapist. I don't just have another motivational speaker. I don't just have another bumper sticker, and I don't just have another wristband. Instead, I have Jesus, who's fully God, fully human, makes a difference in my life, and that takes us to our last route, the answer. Now, if you grew up in the 90s, you may think Allen Iverson is the answer. He's not. Jesus is the answer. So... Here's what Colossians says. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. We are so sick as a family, a community, a neighborhood, a country, of people coming up with solutions that are never solutions. Do you know what I mean? Someone says, I got it. This is going to solve everything. Everybody do this right here, and this is going to make all the difference. Now, here's the challenge. As we pray about life, as we learn more about life, as we do reading, as we do research, whether we read science journals, whether we read business journals, whether we talk to people, whether we simply sit at a baseball game and eat hot dogs, no matter where you are, what I have found is that as we progress through, as we go through, There's all these people who want to say there's one problem and therefore there's one solution. There's actually not. There's actually a million problems kind of all together. Therefore, worldly solution, there's not going to be one worldly solution. It's not like if I just do this, if I just start wearing red shoes, we're going to have a thousand people at church. That's not going to... I have a little girl that I talked to this week who wore red Converse, and I said, hey, Emma, I need to get red Converse like you. But I don't think that's going to be the key to just like bringing revival into our community. It's not. The answer is not these things. Let's look. In the 1970s, there was a thing called natural church development that was supposed to be the answer to solving all churches. I saw someone shrug and groan. Exactly. Did natural, did natural church development solve anything? It didn't. People still try to do it and it doesn't really solve anything. In the 80s, marriages, people cared about marriage from a Christian perspective. So they came up with this big push. It was a big video series. Turn your heart toward home. Whose life was changed by that? Exactly. So the problem is big solutions, separate, don't really make the difference. So let's try one more. Here's my millennial one. My daughter pulled out the book recently. The thing that was supposed to fix education and phonics and literacy and everything was something in the 90s called letter people. Anyone remember letter people? I still have my book of letter people. The problem is they don't even use it anymore because it didn't solve all the problems of education. But Jesus is the answer. So my question is, am I living my life searching for the meaning of life? I first encountered this as a little kid when I saw that there was a Monty Python movie called The Meaning of Life. I've actually never watched it. I've heard it was mediocre. But what I did realize is that people search for a meaning of life. All of us are trying to search for a meaning of life, whether we know it or don't. Do I realize that Jesus is the meaning of life? Love Jesus. 
Have faith in Jesus. Allow Jesus into my heart. Jesus, be Lord of my life. Transform my life. Transform me from the inside out. Serve like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Wash feet like Jesus, maybe metaphorically. But can we see that Jesus is the meaning of life. Jesus is the answer to all our problems. If we started having a group of people, whether in this church, in another church, in the community, if we had a group of people who took seriously what we're doing for this series of Jesus be the center, and if we all just said, Jesus is going to be the center of my life from now until I go to heaven, we would start to see something would happen. It's called revival, which means you take something that's withered and it starts to have new life in it, that God would honor it and breathe life into it, and things would dramatically change. There's a story from a theologian, John Wesley. We're doing theology today, so I'm going to go all in. So there was this this theologian and evangelist, and he goes to this community in England hundreds of years ago that's known for having tough people, and a massive percentage of the people were in jails because of violence and thievery and hard drinking and larceny and et cetera, et cetera. So he started preaching Jesus, and God started really working in the community, and people started really responding. And within a couple of years, the jails were empty, and people were serving and making a difference. Now, my point is with this, if I'm searching for the meaning of life, and I'm going here, and I'm going here, I'm probably spending money that I don't have to chase something that's not going to help me. I'm probably taking my time away from my spouse, my children, my church family, and I'm investing in all these other places searching for the meaning of life, when the whole time, if I just give my heart to Jesus, confess that I'm a sinner, confess that I don't get it perfect, confess that I don't need to have this like one-size-fits-all thing in my life, that I can just give Jesus my heart, surrender to him, and say, okay, now, Lord, just use me where you will, that then that is the meaning of my life. Then I will be transformed, and I will start to make a difference. Then I will start to see that because Jesus is the answer, things get better. Now, am I growing my Jesus root system? Am I taking time to read the scriptures and to learn about Jesus? It was helpful for me not to experience things with my friend, Sometimes we think experience is the answer. Oh, I'm just going to have a powerful experience at church, and I'm going to feel amazing. The problem with that, if that's all we do, is that when I'm not feeling amazing, all I have is kind of my fleeting memory of my emotional experience, and I had other stuff too. I have had other emotional experiences at a secular rock concert too. So at that point, the Led Zeppelin tribute band that I went to and the church are just kind of equal. Am I growing my Jesus root system and saying, hey, I'm intentionally reading the scripture, making Jesus a center, learning about him, learning about his characteristics? Am I growing my Jesus root system? I'm going to give you a couple implications. Here's number one. And we're not going to end with a prayer time today. We're going to do something different. Is my relationship with Jesus an abstract abstract idea or does it have roots? Is it just an idea? Number two. A deepening understanding of Jesus leads to a deeper relationship with him. Am I realizing that? That the more I'm reading the New Testament, the more I'm praying with Jesus, the more I'm building those roots, that's going to give me a deeper relationship. And number three, when life happens, do I realize that my rooted relationship will make all the difference? So now we've gone through, and I want to read the poem together. And this is going to be our prayer. We're going to say amen at the end of it. So you're all invited. We're going to put it up on the screen. 
And we're going to read what Paul says to the Colossians that is going to make the difference in our lives when we start to look and say, let's build a Jesus root system. Here it is. Let's read it together in three, two, one. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Amen.